The internet? I don't know. Suddenly, Joe Slattermill knew for sure he'd have to get out quick or else blow his top and knock out with the shrapnel of his skull the props and patches holding up his decaying home that was like a house of big wooden and plaster and wallpaper cards, except for the huge fireplace and ovens and chimney across the kitchen from him. Those were stone solid enough, though. The fireplace was chin high, at least twice that long, and filled from end to end with roaring flames. Above were the square doors of the ovens in a row. His wife baked for part of their living. Above the ovens was the wall-long mantelpiece, too high for his mother to reach or Mr. Guts to jump anymore, set with all sorts of ancestral curios, but any of them that weren't stone or glass or china had been so dried and darkened by decades of heat that they looked like nothing but shrunken human heads and black gold balls. At one end were clustered his wife's square gin bottles. At least she puts them on the mantle. I have to wade through my wife's gin bottles just to get to the room. Yeah, tell me about it. I, I can't even sneak in the house anymore without breaking a bunch of them. <laughs> At night, it's like diehard in here. <laughs> Honestly, I don't mind all the drinking. Well, why can't my wife recycle the gin bottles? Yeah, take a little responsibility for yourself. I've cut myself on those things so many times I got gin foot now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it hurts. Oh, I'm a gin foot. <laughs> Today, we're covering Fritz Lieber's Gonna Roll the Bone. Fritz Lieber is an author who had a connection with Lovecraft, and that is why we're going to talk about it and him on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Happy New Year. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And Happy New Year. I am Chris Lackey. And this month, we are trying a new theme, something we haven't done before. Games. Games. Yeah. And this came about because just a couple of weeks ago, my good friend Jackson Stewart was chatting with me, and he's just released a film called Beyond the Gates. I've, I've brought it up on the show before. He produced it with Lovecraft fan favorite Barbara Crampton, who was also mm-hmm. in the film. Here's the official pitch. Dice turn deadly when two brothers fight to survive a nightmarish role-playing game run by a sinister host, that's Barbara, mm-hmm. in this throwback thriller. It's a throwback because it's got a good 80s synth score and all that business. Yeah, I love that stuff. It feels like a VHS film. And also the role-playing game is actually a, a VCR board game, if anybody remembers playing those. That's not a role-playing game. Not really, but you take on roles and then you play the game <laughs> in that sense. It's a it's a good well, it's a good movie. It's now available video on demand. You can get it from Amazon or iTunes. Oh, right. It's called Beyond the Gates. Please go rent it. Check it out. And I will tell you somebody else who features in this film. Oh, yeah? A Mr. Andrew Lehman. <gasps> what? Yes, in the video store, in the movie. Yeah. Behind uh-huh. the counter, there's a poster for Where Dad. <laughs> of course. Which is the classic Rodney Dangerfield comedy I always wanted to make. In fact, now, I was really encouraged by Rogue One and the CGI characters. Maybe we could get Dangerfield out of retirement to make this movie. <laughs> I don't know. But Andrew, he understood that passion years ago when I was talking about the movie. He designed a prop poster for it using images of he and his father. It's on the video store wall. So when you rent the film and you're watching it, you'll also get to see Andrew peeking out at you from the background in some scenes. Uh, Yeah. Unlike this show in which he is strongly in the foreground. Yes. Andrew is, of course, our reader today. Andrew Lehman, we're so glad to have you back to kick off 2017. We've mentioned it before, but Andrew and the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society have recently released their latest dark adventure radio theater project, The Brotherhood of the Beast. Why don't you uh, read me the official pitch on that? The episode is the biggest and most ambitious yet. Based on the classic Chaosium Call of Cthulhu adventure, The Fungi from Yugoth by Keith Herber, it features Nate Ward, Charlie Tower, and their team of fellow investigators on an epic globe-spanning adventure in pursuit of a dangerous cult. 
The story is so massive it takes three CDs to hold it all, with a magnificent cinematic score by Troy Sterling Neese, and you can play the episode in more ways than one. The third CD features four alternate endings, so you can choose the fate of the characters. That's so cool. And of course, there's a ridiculous amount of highly detailed and amazing props that accompany the CD, so please order it, check it out. We will link out on our show notes to the Brotherhood of the Beast, and of course, we'll also link out to the film Beyond the Gates. On that, as I said, I was talking to Jack the other day when I thought let's do a game themed month so we can push his movie and i said but i don't know any game themed stories that we can talk about so i went to twitter and facebook and just threw it out there what are some good classic weird tales about games yeah and we got a ton of response for this month we are using all listener responses for picking our stories because there are so many suggestions they're all great this particular story was picked out by a listener and friend of the show Patton oswald yeah uh, Patton suggested two Fritz Lieber stories. The first was Midnight by the Morphe Watch, and the second was this one, Gonna Roll Them Bones. So I want to talk about Fritz a yeah. bit. He was born in Chicago on Christmas Eve in 1910 to uh, parents who were famous actors yeah. of stage and film of the silent era, of course. Yeah, he often, I see, gets mixed up with his father because that was Fritz Lieber Sr., Mm-hmm. Uh, he's Fritz Lieber Jr. Now, his dad is an amazing-looking guy. They both are, yeah. really. The eyes and the hair, really unique-looking fellas. Fritz Sr. was a stage actor, Shakespearean, mm-hmm. mainly. He did silent films, but he actually was also in sound films. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his last film was in 1950. Oh. So he worked for quite some time in a lot of different character roles. But when he was younger, the Fritz Lieber that we're talking about, he was an occasional actor as well and actually appeared yeah. with his dad a few times in movies. He was in a George Cukor movie with his dad as well as a James Whale film. I mean, he got to work wow. with some of the best people in the industry. Yeah. So what a lucky guy. Yeah. As a teenager, he got involved with acting and he even toured with his parents in 1928. And then he went to the University of Chicago and he studied psychology and biology, but then worked for for the Episcopal Church, went to seminary in Manhattan, but he didn't take a degree there. And then he went back to University of Chicago, got into philosophy. He still toured with his folks. He started doing his writing when he was on tour. Yeah, he was clearly able to dabble in a lot of things at that age. And I think that's what built such an interesting group of experiences for him to draw from. Sure, yeah. And he was uh, also a correspondent with H.P. Lovecraft, connected with him in 1936, Lovecraft, of course, encouraged Lieber and gave him advice right before he died, because uh, as you know, he died in 1937. Yeah. In the ends of March. So they were only really writing each other in that last year, but Lovecraft was very helpful. Here's an excerpt from an unsent letter that was found in Lovecraft's writing desk after he'd passed away. Young Fritz, 25, a University of Chicago graduate and entering his father's profession, has one of the keenest minds I've ever encountered. His understanding of the profound emotions behind the groping for cosmic concepts surpasses that of almost anyone else with whom I've discussed the matter. And his own tales and poems, while not without marks of the beginner, show infinite insight and promise. Mm. Wow. Lovecraft thought quite a lot of this uh, young writer. So uh, Lieber himself, he got married in 1936, Mm -hmm. and his only son, Justin Lieber, was born in 1939. Yeah, I should point out that it was Lieber's wife, Jeanquil, who actually sent the original letter to Lovecraft. Oh, really? She said, hey, my husband really digs your stuff. You know, you guys should talk. So she's a cool person for having done that. She's the one that got those guys together. Uh, He had his first story published in 1939 in Unknown. It was a Fawford and Grey Mouser story called uh, Two Sought Adventure. From 1937 to 41, he was a staff writer for the Standard American Encyclopedia. In uh, 41, his family moved to California, where Lieber was a speech and drama instructor in Occidental College. Lieber went through a, a lot of jobs in, in his long career. He wrote continually, but it wasn't until he was a little later he moved to California in around 1958 that he could was really able to write fiction full-time. Uh, his wife died in 69, and it really messed him up. 
he had a drinking problem and was in AA for 12 years before his wife died. Yeah. And when she died, it kind of got him back to drinking and he also started using barbiturates. He eventually got back on the wagon, but his addiction was something that he would struggle with pretty much the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. His uh, book, Our Lady of Darkness, was about a weird fiction author who recovers from alcoholism after his wife passes. So, you know, yeah. write what you know. Yeah, I was. I think he always struggled with drinking. And, and in fact, today's story is about gambling, but some mm-hmm. reviewers I read said, well, it's actually about his problems with booze. Now, I know that, that his substance abuse did lead him to be poor at certain periods of his life. Yeah. But it says, I, I was looking in the Wikipedia entry, it said in the last years of his life, royalty checks from TSR, the makers of Dungeons & Dragons, were enough in themselves to ensure that he lived comfortably. So he was making enough from Dungeons & Dragons for licensing Fawford and Grey Mouser. That's mind-blowing to me that one could make enough money off just licensing from D&D. Ag- agreed. That's really crazy. He must have lived frugally. In 92, he got married again, right? His second wife was called uh, Margot Skinner. She was a journalist and poet, and they'd been friends for a long time. And Lieber's death occurred a few weeks after a physical collapse while traveling, for, I think we talked about this before, uh, from a science fiction convention in London, Ontario. The cause of death was given as organic brain disease. This story as an award winner. It was first published in Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions anthology, and it mm-hmm. won both the Hugo Award and Nebula Award for Best Novelette in 1968. Yeah. Uh, it was released in 67. This may actually be the most modern story we've covered on the show. Oh, yeah. Being of that later date. I, th- I think the uh, the refugee was from the 50s, but this is this is from 67. Unfortunately, there is still some racist language in it, which folks should know yep. before they pick it up and give it a read. The first thing I noticed, uh, this is my first Fritz Lieber story, is that he has some very long sentences, which I found a bit difficult to read. But as I did read... I got into the groove of it. That's got to be intentional. His writing gets better as the thing goes on. That's the odd thing. But the, the the beginning is very jarring. Yeah. There's a good review of the story by a fellow named Nicholas White that I found online. And he talks about that opening sentence, quoting the sci-fi author Michael Swanwick, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote about that opening. Fast and cocky, dancing on the fine line between virtuosity and failure, it evokes folktale archetypes and harsh realism while both simultaneously throwing the reader bodily into the story with a quick tour of the protagonist of his house and his predicament. A bravura performance such as this could be sunk by a misplaced comma, but nothing is out of place, unsure, or unclear. I I don't know if I completely agree with that, but it's certainly true that I had to, the very first paragraph of the story, I had to read a few times to get the cadence of it. So it did put me, as you say, into kind of a different place, but after that it got easier and easier. It did. So the story starts off with this guy, Joe, who's a miner. His name's Joe Slattermill. It was sounding familiar to me throughout, and then finally I realized I was thinking of Joe Slater, uh-huh. who was the the hick and from Beyond the Wall of Sleep. That's right. <laughs> so maybe a little homage there, I'm not sure. So uh, Joe, he lives with his wife, who bakes on the side to supplement their income, and his mother lives with them as well. He's kind of a bad guy. He takes mm-hmm. money, goes out and drinks, gambles, sleeps with prostitutes. He loses all of his money, and he comes back home and beats his wife. <laughs> She calls the cops and then he goes to jail. Yeah, if you're a believer in the uh, save the cat rule for protagonists, you're not going to find it here. <laughs> because she's, you know, he's thinking about going out and she sees that that's what he's going to do because it's clearly a pattern. But even after he beats his wife and goes to jail for it, she shows up at the jail and she slips him a half pint through the bars. Yeah. So I don't think anybody is really a good person here. No. And she's got her whole gin collection up there that she's sipping from while she bakes. Right. There, there actually is also a cat, <laughs> speaking of Save the Cat, that lives with them. Yeah. His name's Mr. Guts. What a great name. Great name for an animal. Uh, Lieber was actually a lifelong cat lover, much like Mr. Lovecraft. Uh-huh. Cats show up in a lot of his work. As he leaves for the night, his wife conveys in a look 
all of what we've just said. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you're going to go out and do these things and I'm going to call the cops and you're going to go to jail. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I don't care. And he leaves. He also knows that this time, I don't know, it, might, it may be a while since he's been able to go out and whet his appetites because he's got the feeling. He goes, it, it would, it's going to be that bad and worse this time. He says to them, guess I'll roll the bones up the pike a stretch and back. Very nonchalant. Trying to underplay right. that he's about to go get wasted and do all these things. It's that awful moment when the alcoholic is like, hey, I'm just going to run out and grab a beer. And everybody goes, yeah, we can see a few hours into the future. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be just that. So as he walks out into the night, this town is called Iron Mine, and he lives outside of town just a bit. And I think this is actually a sci-fi story because there's a lot of spaceship similes uh, passing references to other worlds and space travel. So they might actually even be on another planet, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that was really fascinating to me. I don't I don't think they're on another planet because he makes references to the moon. Sure, yeah. I think what it is is this is like a, a future where we've done some colonizing on other planets. People are going into outer space. I think he even makes reference like, I could have been good up there. Yeah. I could have had a job up on the moon, you know? Yeah. But it's just color on the story because the story itself is is mythological. Yeah. It's an allegory maybe or a parable. But it feels very old. The story is basically a person playing a game for his life against death or the devil, which that story has been around for centuries. Yeah. As much as I'd like to think it was invented by Bill and Ted. (laughs) It's an old tale. Uh, Yet the world that he's in is futuristic. So that's an interesting contrast. And that's just done for flavor. It's great. Yeah. One sentence that I thought was great. When he first steps outside, it reads, the night was upside down deep among the frosty stars. Short sentence. Very beautiful. Reminded me a bit of Poe's manuscript found in a bottle when we talked about his similar descriptions of a deep sky, an inversion of the sea that feels like you can fall up into it. And this sentence also uh, shrewdly foreshadows the craps table that we're going to see later. Mm -hmm. So when he goes into town, he goes past the Cypress Hollow Cemetery and into this place he calls Night Town. And again, he mixes the gothic with the sci-fi. I really liked this phrasing where he's talking about the unseen ghosts and breezes in the night as he's walking. Joe sensed that the ghosts were just as restless as the breezes, uncertain where or whom to haunt or whether to take the night off, drifting together in sorrowfully lecherous companionship. While among the trees, the red-green vampire lights pulsed faintly and irregularly like sick fireflies or a plague-stricken space fleet. (laughs) He winds it up with some kind of alien movie or something, you know? It's it's like such a cool flight of description there. And it's the type of writing you're not necessarily going to see from your typical Lovecraft protege. Definitely not. So the town is dead, but he hears some music and sees some lights up ahead. And as he comes around a corner, he sees that there's this place hopping. It's got a big neon sign. And it's called the Boneyard. And underneath the sign, it says gambling. It's some new place that is open at last. And it says here, God, it had been years now since he had fought a real fight or felt the power. Yeah. And the power is is bolded. What do you think that's about? I feel like that he's ready to gamble. Like he feels mm-hmm. he's got luck on his side. Yeah. Like he knows that he can win. I think you're right. Yeah, which you don't know exactly why yet, but he mm. you find out a little bit later why. Yeah. Well, he's got some kind of special powers. He does. So he goes inside. This place is huge. There's lots of tables with lots of gamblers. All are bald, mm-hmm. he says, with worrying. And he refers to them as mushrooms, <laughs> like throughout the story. Yeah. Uh, and there's also women dressed in red. Are they prostitutes? Or they work there. Yeah. It's all very jazz age in here, kind of. That's what it it feels like. He looks around and finds the the number one craps table where all the big mushrooms are. And he scopes it out. One of the table, there's this really fat man. The fattest guy Joe's ever seen. And he's all decked out. He has this huge gold tie clasp that reads Mr. Bones. 
Mm-hmm. And then he's got this very thin woman, barely dressed, that's hanging around him. She was all right if you went for the type that isn't much more than pale skin over bones with breasts like china doorknobs. <laughs> that's very uh, noirish, doesn't it? It feels yeah. like uh, something out of Dashiell Hammett or something like that. And there's this other guy at the table that seems to be the big cheese. He steadily lifted his eyes and looked straight across the table. The coat was a shimmering, elegant pillar of black satin with jet buttons, the upturned collar of fine, dull plush, black as the darkest cellar, as was the slouch hat with downturned brim and for band only a thin braid of black horsehair. Joe still couldn't see much of the face except for smooth lower forehead with never a bead or trickle of sweat. The eyebrows were like straight snippets of the hat's braid and gaunt, aristocratic cheeks and narrow but somewhat flat nose. The complexion of the face wasn't as white as Joe had first judged. There was a faint touch of brown in it, like ivory that's just begun to age, or Venusian soapstone. Behind the man in black was a knot of just about the flashiest and nastiest customers, male or female, Joe had ever seen. He knew from one look that each bediamonded, pomaded bully had a belly gun beneath the flap of his flowered vest and a blackjack in his hip pocket and each snake-eyed sporting girl, a stiletto in her garter, and a pearl-handled, silver-plated derringer under the sequined silk in the hollow between her jutting breasts. But the man in black, he is the actual real badass of the bunch. It was the man in black, their master, who was the deadly one. Kind of man you knew at a glance you couldn't touch and live. Also important about him, it says, This one's eyes were sunk so deep, you couldn't even be sure you were getting a gleam of them. They were like black holes. I don't think he has eyes at all, actually. It's hard to tell because he has his hat and it's mm-hmm. shady, so you can't you can't really get a good look at this guy's eyes. Joe knows that this is the kind of guy who, when he comes to town, he'll only be in this place like once in a decade. Yeah, well, the real high rollers never come through here. As you got to look at the craps table, it's really strange. It's almost like a big coffin. It's long and it's lined with this black felt instead of green. And at the bottom of the table, it has like this twinkly, diamondy quality to it. Mm-hmm. And it says, as Joe lowered his gaze all the way and looked directly down, his eyes barely over the table, he got the crazy notion that it went all the way down through the world so that the diamonds were stars on the other side, visible despite the sunlight there. Just as Joe was always able to see the stars by day up the shaft of the mine he worked in, and so that if a cleaned-out gambler, dizzy with defeat, toppled forward into it, he'd fall forever towards the bottommost bottom, be it in hell or some black galaxy. There's something really odd about this place. It's that idea again of drowning in the sky, falling into space, that's all in this table for some reason. So the dice, Joe notices, are strange as well, and they've got rounded corners, and the number dots are gems, and each dice face kind of looks like an actual face. Like a miniature skull. The dots are configured in such a way to always look like a skull no matter what the number is on the die. After the dice are thrown, a woman with long skinny arms and long white gloves picks Mm -hmm. up the dice and hands them to the thrower. Joe gets an opening at the table and he snakes in there and he says, uh, roll for a penny, which means roll with one chip because he's poor. He doesn't have the money like these high rollers have. And all the mushrooms get all mean and tell him to beat it. But then the man in black calms and he says... You know, let him play. Says the really great gamblers were always perfect gentlemen and generous to the poor. Joe takes the dice and we find out that Joe is an expert thrower. Yeah. He can throw dice in such a way that they land how he wants them to. Yeah, I love it. He has a superpower. Yeah. It says, in the mine, he sometimes amused himself by tossing little fragments of rock back into the holes from which they had fallen so that they stuck there, perfectly fitted in for at least a second. Sometimes, by fast tossing, he could fit seven or eight fragments into the hole from which they had fallen, like putting together a puzzle block. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> he can just do that. That's total bullseye stuff. Yeah, exactly. Bullseye Hawkeye, he's one of those kinds of guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like Bullseye. Bullseye could take anything and make it into a weapon, like mm-hmm. throw a penny at somebody and kill him. Ooh, don't say that. 
pennies all over the place here. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> he, he rolls well, and he keeps rolling up his dough, mm-hmm. and then again and again, and the guy's totally on fire. Yeah, he takes that dollar, and he, he rolls it up. It gets a little heavy with the craps talk in the story, because I don't really understand how that game works. My brother tried to explain it to me once, and I just was uh, lost. He's winning, and that's what's important. At one point, he goes to pick up the dice off the table, and when he touches them, they're so hot that they actually burn him. Yeah, well, it's well, it's not really the dice that are hot, though. It's the table ah, and the table's surface because that's where things, you know, it's that's that weird, surreal thing about this table. When he sees that the dice girl grabs the dice, they stay flat. She doesn't pick them up. She puts her hand underneath them, which means that she's actually penetrating the surface of the table oh. with her hand and lifting them up. I didn't get that. When he saw the table, he imagined you could just fall through it into some other kind of world. And he thinks, well, maybe I was right. So to test it. He snatches the dice real quick before she can get to them, penetrating the table with his hand quickly, and it burns. He says his fingers and the back of his hand were in as much agony as if he'd stuck them into a blast furnace. No wonder the dice girl wore white gloves. They must be asbestos. And, and a good thing he hadn't used his shooting hand, he thought, as he ruefully watched the blisters rise. So it really burned him to do that. So the mushrooms get all bent out of shape that he does this, and they want to throw them out. Right. And that's the worst when you're gambling and you do something wrong. I've done it. <laughs> Where you grabbed the money, or you grabbed this, or you did that, or you handed somebody something you weren't supposed to do it, and they give you that look, and you just think, <laughs> I'm going to get my legs broken, and it's just because I'm stupid. <laughs> but the man in black, he says... Tell him, Mr. Bones, and then Mr. Bones, the fat guy, speaks up and says, No gambler may pick up the dice he or any other gambler has shot. Only my dice girl may do that. Rule of the house. Now he, Okay, okay, now he knows the rule. The man in black lets him stay in the game. While they're gambling, a woman is hanging all over the, the man in black. The other guy comes up looking all jealous, and he pulls a knife and comes up behind the man in black to stab him. He said he was a raggedy, elegant chap with the elf-locked hair and staring eyes and TB-spotted cheeks of a poet. Yeah. This guy's just been like gloomily hanging in the corner and he's finally decided to take his chance and right. go after the man in black. The man in black's arm shoots out and it does something to the guy mm-hmm. and he drops dead. But Joe can't figure out whether he punched him or stabbed him or, or what happened. <laughs> well, he has some other options in his head. He says, Joe couldn't tell whether he stabbed the poet chap in the throat or judo chopped him there <laughs> or gave him the Martian double finger. Well, what's that? I don't know. <laughs> So he keeps throwing in the little the little sci-fi, sci-fi things, yeah. yeah. Uh, but some dudes just come right in, grab the body, drag it away, and no one stops what they're doing. So this kind of event seems to be pretty commonplace in the boneyard. Sure. It's a rough, rough time in there. Okay, so the big gambler isn't doing anything, and he wants to see him roll. Mm-hmm. So Joe decides to roll for a penny again. So, like, you know, he's been rolling up his money, doing bigger and bigger gambles, but now yeah. he's just back in for a penny. And when he does it, he throws boxcars, which is bad i guess mm-hmm. yeah and then he passes the die that's double sixes uh it's not good in craps so the other the dice then pass to the other mushrooms who are at the table they all play mm-hmm. none of them are great so play passes around the table after a bit finally comes to the big gambler so the man in black throws and it was a throw like none joe had ever seen before at any crap table the dice traveled flat through the air without turning over struck the exact juncture of the table's end and bottom and stopped their dead showing a natural seven Ugh. So just like, oh, he can throw like me, but he's got no style. Like, what's up with that? I can throw it and do a flourish and make it look like I'm doing it naturally, but he's right. totally doing it straight. He throws them out. They don't turn. They just land that way. If I was even playing Settlers of Catan, I would be mad at this guy. 
Like, I would not put up with that. He says here, by all the rules he's ever heard, it was a most questionable throw. There was the possibility that one or the other dice hadn't completely reached the end of the table or lay a wee bit cocked against the end. Besides, he reminded himself, weren't both dice supposed to rebound off the end, if only of a fraction of an inch? So he's thinking, like, maybe this isn't... But he's not going to say anything. Mm. The man in black is wagering a lot and winning really big. Yeah, he says it seemed unjust that the big gambler should be winning such huge bets with such machine-like, utterly unromantic rolls. The dice never turn over an iota in the air or after. He's cleaning out all the other players, and they're leaving one by one from the table. So Joe starts to fume. So the man in black, he says... Uh, I believe that the fine shooter across from me has doubts about the validity of my last throw, though he is too much of a gentleman to voice them. Lottie, the card test. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand what she's doing here. I've read this over a few times. She she waves the playing card between the dice and the table? I, yeah, I believe that the dice are supposed to rebound against the wall of the table. So if they're right. stopped against the wall, then it's not a good roll because they need to bounce off of it. So you, ah, you okay, take so a she, card and slide it between the wall and the dice to show that they're not touching. If they're touching, gotcha. then the, the wall is what stopped it, not the... That's you know. it. It works. You know, she does it. It's legitimate. The big gambler says satisfied, mm -hmm. and Joe nods despite himself. You know, he's not really, but he, you know, what else can he do? Right. Yeah, he didn't know that the gambler was going to run the table like this. Otherwise, he never would have let him up. Right, exactly. To make matters worse, the big gambler had taken uh, to gazing steadily at Joe with those eyes like coal mines. <laughs> it says why he was getting as bad as Joe's wife or mother. Watching, watching, watching Joe. Yeah. The protagonist always feels like he's under somebody's thumb all the time. The man in black keeps winning. Guys start leaving until there's just three of them left. And the place is getting empty and quiet. Joe notices that the complexion of the man is darker. Like he's thinking maybe that this guy is actually a black dude who is wearing makeup to make himself look white. Right. Black dude is not the word that he uses. No, he does that. not. <laughs> but that's the gist of it. Yeah. Finally, the last of the mushrooms are out and it's just Joe and the man in black. And he says, Joe, rolling your pile. You got to go all in if you want to play. But he wants out. He's six grand up and his mm -hmm. wife and his mom are going to have to eat their words. Like if he comes back with all this money. Yeah. But he can't bear the thought of a room full of strangers <laughs> thinking that he is a wimp. So he's in. Yeah. Freaking Shouldn't have done chump. that. The man in black threw the dice and, and asked if Joe was satisfied. And Joe wants to say yes. But then he says, Lottie, I want a card test. Yeah, he does the card test again. But this time, you know, Lottie gets really angry and she kind of snarls at him like she's going to spit venom. But the man in black holds up a finger and he's like, no, do, do the card test. But this time, the die fails the test. Like it didn't, I, I guess what you said, when it when the card goes, it moves the die. So that means that it, it didn't work. And then the man in black graciously apologizes and gives Joe the dice. It says Joe yielded to an uncontrollable impulse and cast the two dice straight at the big gambler's ungleaming midnight eyes. They went right into the big gambler's skull and bounced around inside there, rattling like big seeds in a big gourd not quite yet dry. <laughs> That's really gross. <laughs> Throwing out a hand, palm back to either side to indicate that none of his boys or girls or anyone else must make a reprisal on Joe. <laughs> That's so weird. Hold on, hold on. He did just throw dice into my eye hole. <laughs> Everybody back off. Then it says, the big gambler dryly gargled the two cubicle bones then spat them out so that they landed in the center of the table, the one die flat, the other leaning against it. So that's why they're cocked. But he kind of goes, does a little <laughs> and then just spits them out. <laughs> yeah. And nobody finds this odd. Well, and yeah, because Joe figures out what's going on. He knows who the man in black is. Yeah. And then why he's looking darker and darker is because he's flipping Skeletor. It's Skeletor. Thank you. I knew it's it. Skeletor. Well, he's, he's <laughs> either the devil or a demon or something. You know, this is a completely yeah. supernatural experience. And in that point, he knows... 
that he's gambling against the devil. And I think it's the devil because of all the fire and the burning imagery and stuff. Right. But at the same time, I thought maybe it was death. There was a part here, it said, a little corner of Joe's mind wondered how a live skeleton hung together. Yeah. Did the bones still have gristle and thews? Were they wired? Was it done with force fields? Or was each bone a calcium magnet clinging to the next? I thought the implication there was that the big gambler was almost like just a skeleton in the clothing. Yeah, yeah. Which seems a little more like death to me. Yeah, so it could be just death that he's playing against. So Joe makes another roll. Yes. He makes like the first mistake he's ever made. Yeah, and he's like, what's up with that? Something weird is going on here. I don't understand why why that happened. But they came up all wrong and he lost his money. So Mr. Bone says, end of the game, but the man in black is like, not necessarily. Joe can wager his life. <laughs> and now when has that worked for anybody? When you're playing against death or the devil that you just win? Uh, I Did that work for Bill and Ted? Didn't they play Battleship and win? They played, well, that was, yeah, they did against death. That's right. That was against Well, they played chess and they lost and then they played Battleship and they played a number of games and then they kept winning. You know, like they played Twister. Right, right. Well, there's an answer to your question. I guess it does work out. Well, Bill and Ted, they're special. So it works out for them. Yeah, you're right. They are special. So Mr. Bones is like, man, this chump's life ain't worth two cents. And he gets a laugh from the peanut gallery on that. But the man in black lays his hand on the gun and everyone shuts up. Well, Mr. Mr. Bones is such a weird character. Yeah, who is that guy? I know he runs the place, but what does he represent? He's like the fattest man ever and... Uh, I don't know. Kind of a Jabba the Hutt character. Maybe he's the devil and then uh, the man in black is death. Oh, it's like a partnership. Yeah, could be. I don't know. Wow. I'm just guessing. Just blew my mind. Uh, but <laughs> the uh, man in black says, you know, I have use for Joe Slatermill's soul. So, uh, you know, yeah. let me let me decide. The idiot Joe goes, yeah, okay, you know. Why not? I got nothing to lose. My life sucks. So I might as well play against the devil. Can't get any worse. Yeah. And it's a pretty sweet bet, actually, because basically he's putting up his soul in his life. Yeah. His soul is a side bet. But the devil or the death, whomever this is, says, I will venture all my winnings of tonight and throw in the world and everything in it for a side bet. So that's pretty Come good on. if he could win the world and everything. in. Yeah, but th- that's not going to happen. But he's got a superpower. It's almost guaranteed. But it's not because he just rolled and it didn't work. So he knows that it can. <laughs> it's not going to work if death is putting that up on the table you mm-hmm. know you can't win like he's not going to put that up if there's even the remotest chance that sure well it doesn't matter anyway because this isn't a fair game this is what because this is what happens when he throws the dice he throws the dice they never hit the felt it says they went swooping down then up in a crazy curve far out over the end of the table and then came streaking back like tiny red glinting meteors toward the face of the big gambler where they suddenly nested and hung in his black eye sockets each with the single red gleam of an ace showing snake eyes yep. he got the worst really can but it they shot up into the air and floated <laughs> into the guy's eyes so it's not really is that fair and correct <laughs> no it's not but he's playing death <laughs> so yeah he gets to make the rules he says joe Slatermill, you've crapped out you know this has got to be the devil because why would death doesn't need to make deals with people right he'll play know. a game with you and if you win he won't kill you maybe he doesn't usually want your soul the soul was the side bet and this is the bet for his life so the man of black says you can kill yourself with a gun or slit your throat or poison yourself or miss fossey can kiss you to death and then he looks at her and she smiles and she's got vampire teeth i want to find out more about miss flossy me too or you can take the big dive and he goes i'll take the big Mm. dive and what he does is it looks like he's going to jump into the void of the table. Yeah, that would be the big dive, right? Right. To, to jump into the the inky blackness in the craps table. But what he does is he jumps and just dives at the man in black. Yeah, he goes over it. When he does it, he slams into him, but it's like he's not there. He just kind of crumbles. You know, he punches his chest. His hand goes through it. It's just like it's cl- basically empty clothes. And he punches his mm-hmm. head and his skull caves in. He's just this fragile skeleton. Wow. 
fragile skeleton. When he does grab in his head, like smashes into his head, he actually grabs a huh. fragment of the dude's skull. Right. And then everybody goes nuts in the boneyard and they go after him. They're grabbing him and they're kicking him. They're biting him. People are judo chopping him in the head, which is yeah. funny. <laughs> but none of them can really affect him. It's almost like it's a dream. Right. He grabs some chips, shoves them into his pocket. And he well, yeah, they're pushing him and they're grabbing him, but then they actually kind of get enough strength. All of them only have enough strength to kind of push him out of the joint. It's like more of a gentle kick in his butt than it really is like being mm-hmm. slammed on the ground. And he looks at himself. He's all right. He's unhurt. He turns around and the boneyard is just dark and silent. And instead of the swinging door that he came in, there's a padlocked sheet iron door. He found he was chewing on something crusty that he'd somehow carried in his right hand all the way through the final fracas. Mighty tasty, like the bread his wife baked for best customers. At that instant, his brain developed the photograph it had taken when he had glanced down as he flashed across the center of the crap table. It was a thin wall of flames moving sideways across the table, and just beyond the flames, the faces of his wife, mother, and Mr. Guts, all looking very surprised. He realized that what he was chewing was a fragment of the big gambler's skull, and he remembered the shape of the three loaves his wife had started to bake when he left the house, and he understood the magic she'd made to let him get a little ways away and feel half a man, and then come diving home with his fingers burned. He spat out what was in his mouth and pegged the rest of the bit of giant popover skull across the street. He fished in his left pocket. Most of the pale poker chips had been mashed in the fight, but he found a whole one and explored its surface with his fingertips. The symbol embossed on it was a cross. He lifted it to his lips and took a bite. It tasted delicate, but delicious. He ate it and felt his strength revive. He patted his bulging left pocket. At least he'd start out well provisioned. Then he turned and headed straight for home, but he took the long way around the world. Well, that is an insane conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So on so instead of this being just a supernatural deal with the devil, this might have just been a spell that his wife cast. Yeah. As a way to reform him, yeah. to take him out, show him the devil, burn his hand, and then bring him back with communion wafers in his pocket so that he can be now pursue a life of virtue, I assume. Yeah. But he takes the long he takes the long way around the world before he comes home, so Yeah, I guess she just got rid of him. That was kind of her <laughs> her mission. Get rid of this guy, and uh, she did. So this is a story that I think is left over to multiple interpretations. I don't think there's any one meaning to this story. No way. Story. Yeah. I don't have no idea what it ultimately is supposed to mean, but uh, yeah, got some interpretation. I'm not sure if the if the author really is trying to put a firm interpretation in there either. I think it's probably on purpose. Yeah. About a lot of different things. I could see that. A little more abstract storytelling, which is nice. I like that a lot. I mean, it, it gave me a lot of different impressions. I was confused at times, but it was a good confusion. Yeah. A really, a really good one. I'm glad that Mr. Oswald recommended it to us. I see I see a future for him in recommending stories <laughs> to us. <laughs> you know, yeah. keep, keep at it, kid. Things just might work out. <laughs> yeah. Since it's uh, game month, I also wanted to mention that Fritz Lieber was a, was a bit of a chess master. Oh, didn't know that. His greatest achievement at chess may be winning clear first in the 1958 Santa Monica Open. Oh, wow. So in my town here. Yeah, your town, my old haunt. Yeah, he won some chess, uh, a chess open. Our next story that we're going to cover is going to be a Ray Bradbury story. 
called The October Game. Yeah, another game story, another one that was suggested by our listeners, and we haven't done any Ray Bradbury uh, on the show yet. Haven't we? I thought we did. No, we haven't. He's my favorite author, but no, he's a little too late for what we normally cover. However, I think the story that we're going to cover was published in Weird Tales. It's one of his earlier 1940s stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to sneak him in here, and then maybe at some time in the future we'll do a whole month, because we love Ray Bradbury. We love him. But after today's story, I'm definitely a a believer. A believer! (laughs) Yes. I want to uh, thank Andrew Lehman for doing an outstanding job, and I want folks to get the new Brotherhood of the Beast, the Dark Adventure Radio Theater audio CDs. I've listened to it. I love all the endings. They're different and exciting, and it's just fun, especially if you've ever played the role-playing game. You will really, really enjoy it, and if you haven't, you'll still enjoy it because it's just great. Yep, absolutely. Check that out, and also don't forget to rent Beyond the Gates or purchase it. You can get it from Amazon or iTunes. It's a fun movie. Check it out. That's all we got this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!